This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity with Dan Monroe. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Brojo Online. And I'm really happy to bring a, a new person in my life here, MJ Fitzpatrick, into this world. And MJ gave me a session recently. I had some money insecurities, and in about half an hour, he just absolutely destroyed them and quite blew me away with his coaching techniques. And I thought, this is a guy I need to know more about. Uh, so welcome, NJ. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for, for having me. <laughs> yeah, you're more than welcome to be here, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, you know, as, as I've prepped you for, I'm keen to dig into your story. And as I was just saying a minute ago, when we were talking privately, that uh, your story is as yet unknown to me. So I'll be exploring this with you for the first time. Um, so why don't we just start a little bit in general. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Sure. So, oh, such an open-ended question. I know, I'm a uh, bastard, right? <laughs> <you know? laughs> so look, uh, I am extremely blessed in the life that I'm able to live. I do what I love. Um, for my work day in, day out, I live and breathe it. I go to sleep thinking about it. Um, and I am just incredibly grateful for the quality of life that I'm able to live. Uh, you know, my work is probably the biggest thing in my life outside my relationship to my beautiful girlfriend. Um, and I just really enjoy wading into, um, you know, life with people and helping them maybe see more joy or, uh, more hope or more strength than they recognize and kind of helping see them the way I see them. And funnily enough, uh, if you do that enough times, people decide that they want to pay you money for it. So, <laughs> you know, um, I live in Sydney, um, run my own business. And at the moment, I'm just really focusing on scaling that out as much as I can. Awesome, man. You know, that's that's what I felt when we had our session together. It felt like you could see something obvious in me. And you're just waiting for me to kind of catch up to you there. And I, I really got that sensation. I, I get that when I'm working, you know, with the best coaches. It's like they're almost, uh, it's like a father looking at his son. Like I can obviously see the strength. You just need to get over your own bullshit and see it too. And I got that sensation from you. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, this yep. is a guy who knows what he's doing, you know. Um, yeah. But it's quite crazy, you know. We were, we were talking before this started that so many people who get into this sort of business have had to help themselves. And once you help yourself enough times and you start to see the patterns, it's crazy how clear some of these things are. Like sometimes you're working with someone and within four sentences of them meeting you, the pattern that's inside them is screaming out at you. And so mm. it's a pretty cool job to do. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely, man. I, I can't imagine myself doing anything else either. You know, it's just. Like you say, once you can see it, it's whatever. It's like the Matrix or whatever. It's just it was there the whole time. Yep. And uh, I realized when back in my older days when I really lacked self worth, the only reason I couldn't see everybody else suffering through their own issues is because I was locked up in my own bullshit. I was in my own head. I wasn't even paying attention to people really. Once you do start paying attention to them, it's right there. And as you identified, the strength they need is already there as well. Yep. So, I mean, on that note, I mean, the whole point of the show is to dig back and, and figure out, you know, what it was you had to help yourself with and where this all started for you. So, 
with that in mind, I mean, let's let's have a look at your background, man. What what got you into working on yourself in the first place? Sure. So, how long of a story do you want me to go into? <laughs> like we could we could talk about four hours, but yeah. all right, I'll uh, you know, I do th- I do tell this story a lot um, mm-hmm. because a lot of the times if I'm in a workshop on resilience, I give you know a twenty minute version of my story to kind of show people that the material that I'm teaching isn't just theory for me. It's actually something that has quite legitimately saved my life. So if at any point you feel like I'm just giving you a, like a default response, feel free to pull me up or ask me a question on whatever it is. But well uh, I was born in a town called Wagga Wagga, uh, which is halfway between Sydney and Melbourne. Um, it's a town of about 50,000 people and it's full of bogans. I'm not sure if you have, I'm sure you have mm-hmm. the same in um, New Zealand or Rednecks if you're in Australia. And from a pretty young age, I definitely did not fit in with people. Um, You know, I was consistently bullied throughout my entire high school career. You know, kids following me home in year seven, beating me up. Other kids in year seven beating me up. Year seven wasn't a good year for me. Um, And just had extremely low self-esteem, very low self-confidence, and maybe one of the biggest challenges for me was just not being able to connect with, uh, firstly, not really understanding social rules in the same way that a lot of other people did. Um, there were just some, you know, just bleedingly obvious things about how you're supposed to interact with other people that I just, I didn't understand. You know, one of the most obvious ones being that when someone throws banter at you, they, they don't actually mean it, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a joke. Whereas it, it took me until I was quite literally 20 years old to learn that lesson, right? And so you can imagine growing up as a kid, when everyone's throwing banter at you, everything they say you take to heart. And then this whole story that I would tell myself of people don't like me, I'm not good enough, you know, I've got no friends, became a, this huge kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And I was just the most needy, um, just a very, very needy human being growing up. So... You know, there were periods where uh, I did experience a lot of joy in my childhood. Um, there were certain years of my schooling where it seemed like everyone, you know, kind of liked me again, and I wasn't being too obnoxious. Um, when I whenever I was, I was whenever I was at a school with girls, I had a great time. Um, not because, don't worry, I was the permanent resident of the friend zone, but <laughs> I found it. I just found it so easy to communicate with women because there isn't that inherent need for hierarchy a lot of the times when you're speaking to a bunch of women, whereas with men there are. And I always felt like I was at the bottom of the hierarchy whether I was or wasn't. And so around women, that was kind of gone and I could feel free to express myself, um, you know, how I wanted to. And so gave me a great sense of freedom. So, you know, was definitely chief resident of the friend zone, but had a lot of women friends growing up. And then when I was 17, I moved to boarding school in Sydney, um, which was a, you, you know, Fancy boarding school, very elite. Um, and I was there for year 11 and year 12, which is the final years of school for our, um, our system over in Australia. And taking a kid with low self-esteem and this perpetual fear of being at the bottom of a hierarchy and putting him in potentially the most hierarchical situation you could be in at a, which is at a elite private boarding school where you can't, you literally cannot leave. Um, was a bit of a recipe for disaster. You know, already I had these huge insecurities and couldn't really struggle to get along with guys my age. 
And then you remove the fact that there's no longer women at the school. And to be honest, I was probably a pretty feminine guy because I'd spent so much time around that energy that I just, within a very, very quick amount of time, felt like I was just at the bottom of an even bigger pile that was even more violent um, and even more testosterone-fueled and dominant. You know, just little things like when I was meeting people for the first time, you know, shaking their hand and being like, hey, I'm Sam, and I'm like, you know, hey, I'm Matt. I just want to let you know I'm going to forget your name. And that that being the initial conversation I would have with people without recognizing that that's a that's not what you say to people when you first meet. Hey, nice to meet you. I'm going to forget your name. And it wasn't arrogance from me. It was just I knew I wasn't going to remember his name because I wasn't very good at names. And so I just I didn't understand this whole concept of, you know, social rules and social intelligence. And so, you know, it was bullied extensively. There were times when the whole boarding house would come and beat the shit out of me, which I think logistically is quite quite well organized. So hats off to them. Um, you know, I had a nickname. Of, my nickname when I was at school was Dead Cow. Um, and bullies are obviously very uh, creative people. Um, and so that was, that was basically my life. And then I was... Uh, in year 12, in one of the first months of year 12, I was playing rugby union for my school and I got my head in the wrong position in a scrum. I'm, I'm like six foot four and 90 kilos, so I shouldn't have been playing in the front row at any point. Right. But um, I got my head in the wrong position in a scrum and actually broke my neck. So I ruptured the ligament between C4 and C5. So if you imagine that there's seven bones in your neck, on the front and the back of the bones connecting them all, there's these little pieces of rope to make sure they don't move too far. Um, and I'd gotten my head in the wrong position, and so one of those pieces of rope had actually snapped. Um, and, you know, in that moment, if you if you play the odds, if you're going to play roulette, for example, the far most likely outcome of that injury is that I die, and that's that's my death then. I'm pretty sure I was still a virgin at that age. So that, mm. that, that was that. that. That was that. Um, the second most likely outcome if you were playing roulette would be that I would have become a quadriplegic. So I would have been able to speak. I think I would have been able to feel from about my chin down, so I should have been able to talk. But there's no promising whether or not the shock of that would have killed me as well. And then a distant, distant, distant third um, most likely outcome was uh, you know, basically surviving and still being able to walk. So the pain of that moment was um, quite comprehensive. And I spent the next five months um, in and out of hospital. I developed a post-traumatic stress disorder, which meant if I felt any sort of extreme stress or anxiety that I would get the kind of rolling blackouts uh, in my body where I just wouldn't be able to feel certain parts of my body, get incredibly nauseous, have to go to hospital. Um, the bullying didn't stop when I was in a neck brace. So you can imagine already having low self-esteem and then being put in a giant neck brace and, you know, my nickname became Shitneck or Cripple. And so I was just in this position, and not everyone at the school was bad, but I was just in this position where I was on a lot of panadine fort every day. I was um, surrounded by people who I felt didn't like me, and I was already incredibly scared of people having been bullied basically my entire life. But then to have this intense physical trauma happen to me, which I didn't have emotional intelligence enough to be able to kind of sort through, and I now had to deal with what happens if someone runs into me, what happens if I'm in a car and it crashes, what happens if I roll over the wrong way in my sleep. Like just my whole body was consumed by fear and what was left of me was deadened by the amount of painkillers I was on every day. And so I was just walking around as a zombie 
um, you know, it, it did really interesting things to my mind. Um, I became even more analytical, if that was even possible, um, even more focused on breaking down and trying to analyze things because, you know, as I'm sure you know, the analytical part of your brain is engaged when you need to protect yourself. And so when I was in, I was living in a world which was intensely scary for me, I just wanted to protect myself from everything around me. So two days after, so to, you know, you, you want to hear the vulnerable dark side, well, after about four months of wearing the neck brace, it looked like things were getting better. Um, they decided not to operate originally because I was young and they were hoping that scar tissue would kind of um, develop and I'd be okay. And then I was um, changed from a hard collar to a, neck, uh, a soft collar, a hard collar being something that's big and made out of plastic and a soft collar being like one of those things that kind of look like neck warmers that mm -hmm. most, probably, most people probably think of when they think of neck brace. And when I transitioned from the hard collar to the soft collar, the pharmacist that helped me buy the new collar didn't actually fit the new neck brace properly. So I basically had gone from wearing a um, hard collar to a neck warmer, and there was no support in my neck at all. So this month where my muscles were slowly, slowly, slowly supposed to be developing back, um, they actually started getting worse, right? Because I didn't have any support at all, and I'd gone from basically being in a brace to nothing and your neck muscles will start to atrophy after something like 12 hours of non-use, right? Because they're staring you so much. And so um, I went back to the neurosurgeon and, you know, once you've been through as many MRIs and neck, neck x-rays as I have, you start to be able to see what's good and what's bad, right? At least right. around this specific injury. And after I had the neck, the final set of x-rays that I was having before I went back to the, the, the doctor, I remember opening them up with my dad after leaving the radiology center and, and I knew that they were bad, but I denied it. I was like, I, I, just in my head, you know, too confronting. I don't want to look at that version of the truth. And so I just pushed it away. But I, you know, there's a particular type of x-ray that they would get me to do, which is called a flexion x-ray, which is just putting my neck in a particular position. And they did that because that aggravated the injury and they wanted to see how much it was aggravated and I could tell it had gotten worse. And so we go back to see the neurosurgeon and here I am thinking and like I've been practicing for the last month that I'm going to get better and I'm going to be out of this neck brace. I'd started taking it off when I had slipped, was sleeping. You know, I'd started you know, really starting to feel joy again. I, I'd taken myself off painkillers and like here I was ready to finally let go of this kind of trauma that I'd been through. And then the neurosurgeon took one look at the x-rays and told me that I had to um, have surgery. And that was, you know, an incredibly crushing experience because I, I thought I was getting better. And then to not only be told that I'm not getting better, but I have to have surgery was just soul crushing. I remember going outside and just like told my dad I needed to leave the room and just went outside and I let of the biggest F-bomb that's probably ever been screamed <laughs> in the upper rich North Shore of Sydney. Um, so I was operated on two days after my 18th birthday. Um, and then, you know, that was basically it. My The system washed its hands of me. Um, my doctor, you know, is an incredible surgeon, but potentially probably could have put me in contact with a counselor or someone to talk about. Um, and, you know, I left and I went to college, um, which is where you live when you go to university in Sydney. And here I was at college. I'd never drunk up until my 18th birthday. Um, I was about to go into an environment that is known for drinking heavily and partying. 
I had an inability to talk to any of the girls that I really wanted to be able to talk to. I was always perpetually in the friend zone of the girls that I loved. Um, and it was just a really tough time. And to put all of that, I have to get to know 200 new people that I've never met before. And, and it was just, I needed to go and spend six months by myself somewhere processing what had happened to me with the right books and people around me. And instead I was thrown into a mosh pit of 18 year olds who just want to get loose and party. Um, so that first year I was voted fresher fuckwit, which is just basically the, the, the person who's least liked out of all of the new first years, wow. um, which was obviously published and voted on and everyone got a copy. Um, oh, wow. and you know, all of this because I feel so insecure and have such low self-worth that I coped by being arrogant, right? Which is what everyone does if that's their way of dealing with it. If you feel unworthy, you either deal with it by retreating and becoming super quiet and shy and overly analytical and don't want to deal with anyone, or you deal with it the way I dealt with it, which is just to become arrogant and lash out at the people around you. So in the second year of college, um, I woke up one day and I had a really itchy calf. Um, and I didn't know that that was something you should go and see a doctor about or anything like that. And so I just didn't really think much about it. Um, I kept doing all these basketball drills because I was trying to get good at basketball and um, trying to improve my rock, trying to basically improve my ability in the gym, doing things I shouldn't have been doing, like deadlifting without good form and all sorts of fun things. Um, and eventually that itch became a, a numbness and that numbness started to spread up my calf, up into my knee, and then eventually it became a pain it spread from my calf down into my foot all the way up into my hip. Um, and what had happened is, without realizing it, I'd ruptured a disc in between L4 and L5, um, which is, you know, again, a disc is just a piece of Play-Doh that sits in between your spinal bones and makes sure they don't um, they basically bang on each other. But because we didn't evolve to walk, the, the, our lower backs are not made for that sort of compression, and so there's a lot of injuries are very common there. Um, and what had happened is that piece of Play-Doh had burst and all of the Play-Doh had gone down into my spinal column and started pushing directly on the nerve root of my sciatic nerve, which is the longest nerve in your body and goes from your hip all the way down to your feet. And so I was back in front of the neurosurgeon, back on Panadine Fort, back into wearing a back brace this time instead of a neck brace, you know, back into these huge amounts of pain um, and just like, you know... Most of me was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I already nearly die at 17. I have to get a fucking spinal operation. And now you're telling me, without me doing anything at all, just because of the way my fucking body is constructed, I now have to have a second spinal fusion and I'm 19 years old. <clears throat> so again, they decided to treat it the slow way um, or the, the safe way, meaning not operating straight away and hoping that it was going to get better over time. And I just spent the next 11 months just totally driven with by pain um you know i couldn't get to sleep i couldn't walk very well getting in and out of cars was you know torture walking to uni was torture i was just in pain all the time i was just so sweaty all the time because of how much you know physical exertion i was going through and that was my life and you know as one of my friends at the time kind of told me you know, I'd gotten dealt such a shitty hand that eventually I just decided to throw the hand in the dealer's face and kind of say, you know what, fuck you, I give up. And so, you know, as I said once to my brother, like I just, I felt like the flame inside me had gone out. 
Um, I became heavily addicted to a bunch of different drugs at this time. I was 35 kilos heavier than I am now, still not getting even remotely close to being laid. Um, and so I was just in a really dark time. Um, I started displaying sociopathic tendencies as I kind of lost my ability to empathize with other people because I just stopped caring. You know, it's really hard to not manipulate people if you don't care about whether or not that's the right thing to do. I mean, as soon as you remove that ability to empathize with people, then you just see a social matrix that you can manipulate if you want. So just, you know, became, you know, and, and I certainly had my moments where I was joyful. And I, you know, this isn't all bad, and this is my own story that I tell myself. So who knows how much of this is accurate, but definitely wasn't a healthy person to be around and definitely wasn't, you know, it was definitely toxic for a lot of the people who I surrounded myself with, even though, you know, some of them are still my friends today and we have a great relationship now in that time period. You know, I didn't talk to anyone about what was happening to me because I didn't think anyone would be able to cope with how much pain I was in and I didn't want to make their lives worse by having to hear what I had been through. And so, so much of this protection bullshit was actually damaging me and damaging the people around me. Whereas if I just had reached out and spoken to these people, it would have really helped. So um, I go to Thailand and when I'm in Thailand, I realize that I don't want to be living in the environment that I'm living in anymore. You know, it's one thing to go through physical or emotional, some form of trauma. And it's another thing that Every time you see someone, the first question out of their mouth reminds you of that trauma. Because it would be, hey, Matt, how are you? How's your back? Or, hey, Matt, how are you? How's your neck? And so it's one thing to, you know, be struggling with PTSD because you can't sleep at night because you keep having flashbacks of the moment you broke your neck. It's another thing to then every single time you meet someone or see someone, you're reminded of it again. And so, you know, I had this, uh, this deeper urge to get away from, you know, if I was not an atheist, I would probably say it was God or whoever it was to, to just get away. And so I moved overseas with a really dear friend of mine. Um, and whilst I was over there, you know, to get the long way around to answering your question, <laughs> I, uh, I had a couple of epiphanies. One of them was that he developed really bad social anxiety whilst we were over there. And I, because I didn't realize I had mental health significant mental health problems at the time. But I also knew that he nothing physical had happened to him. He had social anxiety, but it's not like he'd broken his arm or something and then that created social anxiety. Like he was perfectly physically healthy yet had this horrible anxiety. And so I said, well, it's clearly must have been created by your brain. And so why can't we make it go away? And so over the period of the next three or four months, we just continually had conversations about this and I'm a pretty persuasive guy and my starting point was bullshit we can make this go away and you do that for four or five months and eventually something clicked within him and he was able to let it go and in that moment he said thank you to me and that's really when my life started to change um, I realized that what I had been through had taught me some profound lessons about what was important in life and I needed to go and figure those out not only for my own health and, and sanity but if I can do that and I can teach those lessons to other people, they over, if I do it enough, they will eventually feel guilty that they will have to say thank you to me. And then when they say thank you to me, I will be able to feel joy. And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty interesting feeling 
when you've basically been depressed, borderline suicidal, on and off for five years, and to get this raw shot of crack in the form of joy, which just completely revolutionized my life because this really clear link between me investigating myself, teaching that to other people, and doing it enough times that they feel compelled to thank me, therefore giving me joy, was built in my mind. And then around the same time, again, call it coincidence, call it divine luck, if that's what you're into, whatever your metaphor is, I learned, I didn't know it was called the growth mindset at the time, and this is not how the internet called it then, but I learned that you could get better as a person. And if there's any idea which has blown my mind more than anything else, it is that idea. It's such a simple idea, but I literally had no clue that you could do that until I was, I would have been 22 at the time. I had no idea. And with this kid who had been through all his pain, hated himself, you know, had all sorts of self-esteem, confidence, social, like just a smorgasbord of issues to be given the answer. And to just say, well, hold on a second here. If I can just figure out what I don't like about myself, I can just make it better. And so I attacked getting better as a person and in doing so, trying to teach those lessons to other people so they would feel joy and therefore I would feel joy and maybe help myself out of this with a level of intensity and drive that I think comes from being, you know, being in the hole, hmm. right? Like, like being in the hole. And recognizing you can get out of the hole, you just need to pull yourself out. Um, and so, you know, to be honest, it really started from there. Wow. That is Sorry. a lot. <laughs> Long story. <laughs> I did warn you. <laughs> you did, you did. But uh, I'm really grateful for you sharing that, man. There's, uh, there's, there's so much in that that the people I work with, uh, I can see faces coming into my mind as you make specific points of various people who I know are going to resonate with this, people I know personally. But overall, there's this kind of always left out concept, eh? this uh, never connected type thing. Mm -hmm. And it's so brutal for someone yeah. to go through that from such a young age because you can see everyone else or what appears to be everyone else isn't having that. You know, yep. this kind of like... Like what? Yeah, if there was a god, he just decided, you know, what, I'm gonna fuck with this guy, you know, just to be a dick. It's just this guy, you know. And yeah. I can see a lot of that coming through, and I can see, you know, I've seen this in, my, in myself and in many others before. Is eventually you go, well, fuck you too, then, and this resentment yep. just snaps, and you use. I call it a pendulum swing, go from yep. like super people pleasing, approval seeking, to like actually harmful jerk type. You know, like, fine, I'll be the opposite if that's what you want. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is, it's quite interesting because I've just recently been doing some work, um, you know, for a man, your relationship with your competitive desire and instinct is one that's very interesting to me. Um, but what I've realized is recently that competitive, if anyone does anything even remotely to make me feel like I'm inferior, and this happens incredibly rarely, right? It can only ever happen around my work. Everywhere else in my life, I can't feel it. But occasionally something happens in my relationship with my work where someone makes me feel like, where someone treats me in a way where I feel like I'm not being treated how I'm supposed to be treated. Very, very rarely, but it does happen. And this architecture of darkness of all right, motherfucker, 
I am going to build my business in a way to deliberately and specifically put you out of business and then we'll see who's going to laugh. Just a rust. Mm. And it's, it's all that, it's that same thing, right? It's that same feeling of inferiority, feeling like not quite belong. And now that I'm aware of it, I can work on it and make it, you know, heal it and make it go away. But it's, you're so right. It's that feeling of just not connecting and not fitting in and not being the right version to, to play with all these people is so profound. And, you know, if you wanted to look at it in a positive, positive way, so much of my life now is help, helping people connect with themselves. Mm. And you can see that huge pattern of, well, I don't want people to go through what I've been through. Therefore, I will make sure they don't. Yeah, that's, that's so big. I mean, whenever I have a conversation with someone, you know, what's my purpose and that kind of stuff. It's always around like, I think, well, there's a problem you want to solve more than anything else, a problem that keeps you up at night, and it's usually your own problem, yeah. you know, and, and that's what I really see in you is you discovered, you know, you discovered how to get past something that was just crippling you with pain mm-hmm. uh, emotionally, and then you, of course, as soon as you do it, that's the same for me, as soon as I work through all my people-pleasing stuff, I could see it everywhere. It's fucking like mm-hmm. the Matrix. Like, oh my God, there's a lot of people that do this. You know, like, there's everyone suffering, and I didn't see it before. Um, there's a there's a few more things I want to go into on a, a bit deeper level. Um, just because I oh, there's so much here that uh, that so many people I know listen to this uh, are going to resonate with. What I'm, one of the things that came up for me, you know, you're talking about really what sounds like quite severe bullying, you know, especially from a young age. What what support did you have? You know, how did you... Because one of the things that always comes up for me was that, you know, when someone is bullied, one of the things that seems to be lacking is someone helping them make sense of it, understand yep. why it's happening to them and how it's not really about them and so on. You know, yep. what, what kind of support did you have through this process? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really have any support, mm. but that was my own fault. You know, like, I would come home with bumps on my face because I had the shit kicked out of me. And I'm not going to go to my parents and tell them I'm going to get bullied because then they're going to go to the school and then the school will make a big deal out of it and, like, I'm going to get even more embarrassed and even be even more uncool, right? And so I didn't I didn't get any support, but that was it was my own fault. I mean, I was a child, but still it's my own fault, right? Like, it's I didn't reach out to anyone. I didn't know... You know, I just, I, I didn't have the level of self-awareness to be able to step out of myself and look down and be like, that I, I wasn't even aware that you could step out of your mind and actually look at it objectively, if that makes sense. You know, like sure. when you meditate, when, to, be able to, to be able to step back and look at your thoughts. I didn't even know you could do that. I didn't know that was something that could be experienced. And so to, to think that I could work on these things I thought it was, I thought it was who I was, mm. and I didn't know you could change that. So you know, it's almost like asking for support wasn't part of the options for me because I didn't even realize that was something that a human could do. Yeah, I've seen that you know time and time again. I think you know, especially when you're at a young age, mm. you call it say identity. You know, you are what you think you are, and there's no concept yep. of. And it was for me. It was that people pleasing, nice guy thing. It was just who I was. There wasn't the concept of 
alternative options or yes. even just questions about the even the slightest detail. I spent, you know, I must have been your neighbor right there on fucking friend zone street, you know. Yeah. The idea like there's and I always say this to people like there's nothing wrong with being friends with the opposite sex. It's friend zone means you wanted more and you hid it. And yep. You know, I just lived there and it never occurred to me to break even a single part of that behavior that kept me there. Oh, the worst, the worst part of this all is that, you know, coaching women now, having an amazing girlfriend, you know, they understand the, the feminine mind as much as a man can. The girls were into me. Like, there was the thing. That, like, <laughs> it's, it's there. It's, it's the most frustrating part of it all. It's not like I was making this shit up. It was like, I didn't have the balls to make a move. That was, that was the problem. It wasn't that I was going after women I couldn't get. No, 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 no. They liked me. I just didn't do anything about it. Oh. Oh, it choose you. So ones. frustrating. So I, I, I met up with a girl. I, I used to do this friend zone kind of pattern where I'd basically spend six months uh, spending a lot of time with a girl, like going to her house every other day and so on and so forth, never making a move, never projecting any sexuality whatsoever. And then I'd give up after she finally got a boyfriend or something. Yeah. And, and there's this one girl, I met her in town. It was many years later, I'd already become a coach and so on and so forth. And I, I went up to her, I was like, oh, I've got something to confess. You know, our friendship was kind of a sham. I was really into you and I couldn't say anything, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, I was into you too. I was just waiting for you to do I didn't think you were interested. And I just, this light went on. I'm like, holy shit, I missed a lot of opportunities just because I yep. wasn't willing to risk losing them, you know? Yep. I'll give you, I'll tell you my favorite. My mm. favorite of all of my missed opportunities. In my first year of college, I was, in the first week, I was lying in bed, my bed, with two girls. Oh, right? bro. And we were having a conversation about how good it would be to have a threesome. Oh. And I didn't make a move. Not only did I not make a move, I wasn't even aware that that was something that should be done in that moment. Oh, it's brutal to look again, isn't it? Oh, uh, look, it all it all worked out. But yes, it's uh, <laughs> it all worked out. But yeah, it's the amount of yeah conversations I had with my girlfriend are like, my God, now that I understand this, all the things that I missed out on, it's so crazy. Well, I mean, it's, it says a lot that you can have a laugh about it now, and I guess that's what I want to <sighs> dig into a bit deeper. You know, you mentioned epiphanies. You mentioned the concept of, you know, like you might call a growth mindset or the idea that you're not a set thing in concrete. There is flexibility there. Tell us a bit more detail about what it was that you really started to do to create changes. Well, it's a great question. Um I guess a couple of things. So it all comes back to my belief that if I can get better as a person, that that will allow me to figure the lessons out about how to do that, teach those to the people around me, and then they will live a better life and I will be able to get some of that joy. And so I didn't know what I was doing back then I just kept, I just kept trying, right? Like I realized I was a very arrogant human being and I realized I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I just tried to not do that, right? And it was so almost archaic, right? Like if I had the techniques that I had now back then, it would have gone in a week, 
Mm. You know, it took me years, like literally years to let go of some of these patterns because my only method of trying to make it work was to just like catch myself saying something arrogant and being like, oh, I shouldn't do that. But what made it work for me is number one, I didn't run away from the truth, right? It's a really confronting conversation to ask yourself, do I actually like myself? Realize you don't really like yourself. It's a really confronting conversation to have with yourself to be like, am I an arrogant dick? And the answer is yes, right? Like that's hard. Mm. And I wanted it so, and I still do, like I wanted it so badly, so badly that I didn't care how much shit I had to eat, right? It's it's like, um, you know, it's like almost like being a peasant on the fields, but you're told if you do these things and you just keep doing them and no one else is willing to do them because of how dirty it is. But if you keep doing this work, you'll start getting paid. And if you earn enough money, eventually over enough amount of years, you can become a noble and you can own your own castle. It was like that. Like I was just willing to have the conversations with myself that other people weren't. Like I was willing to cop it on the chin after I after I'd had my argument and like done all that shit. Like I was willing to eat it, and I was willing to do the work because it was literally life or death for me. It really was. Now that's you know this is why I've loved doing you know these interviews with people and asking what really happened. You know you look like a beast now, but what's what's the background? And I'm seeing themes, and and, and one of the biggest themes. You've mentioned just two of them right now. One of the biggest ones is before loving yourself happens, you have to face the fact that you don't. You have to mm-hmm. go and have a look at yourself and go, I don't like that guy. And, for, you know, for me, it, was, it wasn't that I was a dick, it was that I was a pussy. <laughs> you know? I yep. had to admit that, like, if I met me, I'd think he was a pussy, you know. Yep. Uh, yep. Which brought up all sorts of insecurities around masculinity and everything around that. So I see yep. that in you, and then this... I love how you've called it a peasant. I'm definitely stealing that one. You know, the student idea that's like, I don't actually know shit. I'm going back to the beginning. Yep. And I don't, and it's not only that, I don't give a shit what I have to do. Mm. Right? And that's, that's, it's such a key point. I was having, you know, I was thinking about this today. Like just, I meet so many people who, who the truth, the truth is staring him in the face. Like people will come and sit down and they're complaining about how the customers aren't seeing the value that they're supposed to be seeing. And the truth is you're not communicating it well enough, right? Like people are getting frustrated that the people that work for them aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Well, that's your problem. You're the leader. You need to get better at that. But it's so easy. It's so easy just to lie with, just to bullshit ourselves and get away from that uncomfortable conversation. And the only, re- you know, when I, as a, knowing what I know now and being a coach, when I play back what happened to me, you know, one was the amazing people around me. Like the fact that I actually had friends w- was huge, right? And two, you know, more deeply was I was doing it to, to try and help other people, right? So I was, I was legitimately trying to get better so I could serve the people around me. But three, and most importantly of all, and it's not even close, I was just willing to do the work and I didn't care. I didn't have an ego, right? I had a huge ego as a, like person, but as a, as a human being trying to grow, I didn't care. 
I didn't, I just, whatever I had to do, I was going to do it. And, you know, if you're going to learn any skill, not having an ego and be willing to look like a complete idiot consistently is a pretty good way to make sure you're learning as fast as you can. Again, that is, there's such a strong theme I get coming through from the people who've made real change, you know, and I, I talk about like sort of humility and responsibility required to go, you know, I'm going back to zero and like you say, I'll eat the shit that requires yeah. eating versus the magic bullet approach versus yeah. the quick fix. The locus of control is outside of me. I just need to consume some resource and I'll be sweet. Versus like, no, I'm going to have to grind through this, cracking the code one wrong guess at a time. You know, uh, (laughs) now this is where it gets really tricky, I think, for helping others. There are people who get that in a rational sense. They go, okay, I get it. I've got to start again. I've got to be a student. What they, it's the making a move on that particular thing that they really struggle with. How to apply it practically, but more importantly, the courage. How was it that you got from you know, sort of what you call yep. arrogance, unwilling to face the truth to, yeah. okay, I'll eat it now. I just didn't give up. And that's, I know that's such a shit answer, but it's the <laughs> truth. I just didn't give up. I knew where I wanted to go. I knew I, I, I knew who I really was inside. Or at least I had a, I had, you know, I had a sense of a feeling mm. of a direction. It wasn't clear. I, had, I didn't know what I was doing. But... I knew where I wanted to go and I didn't, I did not give up. I was adamant that I was just like, you know, and my arrogance helped me mm. because I was like, I don't give a fuck what anyone says. I know who I can be. And I just didn't, I didn't quit. And, you know, to, to make this practical, for me, it was journaling, mm. right? I'd go out, I'd get super fucked up, I'd come home and I'd be by myself. My brain's working a thousand miles an hour because of all the shit that I've just consumed in the last eight hours. Mm. And here I am with my alone, with my thoughts, and I have a journal in front of me. And when you start, and look, I didn't journal every day, but you know, I journal once a month or once every two weeks and just wrote what emotion was in me. I just tried to put it into words as best as I could. And when you do that, you start to be able to recognize your own growth. Because you can look back at your journal and you can look back at who you were, you know, two weeks ago or four weeks ago or, or six months ago and you can realize you're not that person anymore. And one of the most important things for people is growing is growth is sometimes so hard that you need to be able to see that you're doing a good job. Otherwise, you'll give up. And I can go back and read that first journal I ever wrote when I just started getting better as a person and it's raw as it can get. And you can see the depression in my writing. And I now have the opportunity to read that journal and know I am the person that that guy dreamed of being, mm. which, is a, which is a gift like, you know, what a gift, right? Like it, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. But now I can look at that and I can read my journal now and I'm like, well, okay, I've already done this once, mm-hmm. right? Like this person who I'm dreaming of being today, well, if I've already done it once, who says I can't do it again? So it, for me, it was just, it was growth at all costs. Nothing, there was nothing that would stop me from growing. Right. And that doesn't mean that, by the way, I'm so glad that you said, um, one mistake at a time, like, 
my strike rate was probably 99.5% wrong, <laughs> wrong, right? If that, I'm probably giving myself too much credit, but if that. Yeah. But if you just do that enough times, eventually you get where you need to go. And I was in a place of such pain and I didn't like myself so much and I was in the friend zone so many times that I was just like, I don't care. I'm so far beyond caring. I, I am going to figure that out. And, you know, that's, that's, it took five years, but that's what happened. And then along the way, I met more people and my skills got better and I understood self-development better. And, you know, I, you know, I can do more growth now in a month than I could back then in two years, but that I didn't blame my lack of tools. I didn't even know there was tools, right? I didn't even know there was tools until I watched a Tony Robbins TED Talk and I was actually slightly sad because I was like, fuck, someone's already figured this out. I thought I was going to figure it out. Well, someone has already figured out a way to approach this. I, I didn't know any of that existed, but that, that doesn't stop you, right? Like, it, it's just, it's literally... 99.5% of the time you try and do something, you get it wrong, but half a percent of the time you get it right and you just focus on that half a percent instead of the 99.5% and eventually it starts to work. I think it's really important that people hear you say that there's especially the part, like the very clear thing, five years. There yeah. are people who think two months and it's like, no, bro, five years. Like those grains of sand, those 0.5% are worth it. Yeah, but they are as hard as it sounds. It is really well, like the, that yeah. hard. And the hardest part is when you're first starting, because I now know that eating shit works, because right? I've seen it. I look at like I look at my apartment and the fact that I'm not in pain and I've got the woman of my dreams in my life and it's all these amazing people and we're having like all of this shit. I know that it works, but I know that it, I know that it works, and occasionally I still catch myself being like, "Does this work?" Right, I'm like, no, 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 it works. But back then, the only thing that kept me going was that number one, people started treating me differently because I was treating myself differently, and number two was the journal, right? Like, and and this isn't some literary masterpiece. This is some depressed guy writing how he feels. Eventually, I got less and less depressed, and I started to see that I wasn't as depressed anymore, and that gave me hope. And it was just that, like rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, day in, day out, year in, year out. And then, you know, as I got better and I discovered more tools, I could massively speed up this process. But in those initial stages, it was as hard as it could be. There's a, uh, I follow Mark Manson a lot and uh, he talks about how you measure quality of life by your problems. Like if you've got better problems than you used to have, then things are getting better, but there's no problem-free version. There's no finish yep. line to this. Yep. And, you know, I think about, you know, both of us now, our problem is growing our businesses and that that's fucking hard, but it's a good problem to have compared to the problem of, say, having no real connections or the problem of fucking hating yourself. And, yep. you know, one of my hardest, the fucking hardest thing for me to sell most of the time is journaling. For me to, like, convince someone of the 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 absolute importance and the long-term benefits of journaling. It's really hard because most people, they do a single journal entry and they go, fuck, that didn't feel like it did anything. And so they don't do it again and they don't realize that they have always actually been making progress. Most people do. They grow essential wisdom just with time a lot of the time, even if it is only a tiny amount. 
But if they don't track and measure that, they won't see it and they'll lose yep. faith, won't they? Yep. And I think, I mean, one of the reasons I want to do these interviews is because somebody at the beginning of that, on the, like, on the very flat part of the slope, where it doesn't feel like anything's changing and you're only eating shit, it's, I, I think more people need to hear someone say, yeah, that actually works. Yeah. It, no, yes. And it's really fucking hard. Mm. It's really hard. But you either do that and you live the life of your dreams or you don't and you're like everyone else. Yeah. Right? Like it's, yes, it's so hard. And yes, you need to love yourself and mother, you need to love yourself and support yourself and, and push that way. But you also need to be ruthless with yourself and actually have the conversations that you need to have. And, you know, as much as we can sit here and say it takes five years, it does take five years, but it can also take, you know, it, it can actually take a couple of months if you have the right tools. Mm-hmm. If you can understand that change is not a logical process, that there are some problems that you have that you can talk about them a thousand times a week and it will not change. PTSD is a perfect example, which I had in the past. Right? You can talk about PTSD all you want, probably not going to help. If anything, it might make it worse. Mm. You know, anxiety is another one that I find a lot of people with. Talking about it doesn't help. Actually, it just makes them more anxious. So, understanding that, you know, we are a crazy, irrational, emotional beings who occasionally think, occasionally, and approaching your change from that way and recognizing, you know, that there are ways to communicate with yourself which are much more effective than just sitting down saying, I don't want to be arrogant anymore. Then you can make these changes a lot faster than you think you can. But again, no matter what, you really have to want it. Because it's always, well, not always, but a lot of the times it might be harder than you even think. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, one of the things I sort of despise in our industry is anyone who sells the idea that this can be done easily. You yeah. know, it can so, be done quickly with the right support, yes. but easily, no chance. Yes, it can. That's so true. It can be done extremely easily. And making the change itself, actually, a lot of times, isn't hard. It's the conditioning. The conditioning is challenging for a lot of people. And so, you know, I, I literally changed the um, the copy on my website on the front page today from my to my secret technique is doing the work. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's the opening line of my website because it's the truth. Like you can make, you can change your life in 30 seconds. It is possible, but what you're going to have to do to keep that change, that's the thing that most people think is change, right? People say, oh, change is so hard. It doesn't happen overnight. Well, actually change does happen overnight, but changing that sticks, Mm -hmm. that's the thing that is really, really challenging for a lot of people. And that's where, that's basically what our job is as a coach, right? Is to help you with that conditioning part. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. There's a, there's another point I wanted to dig into um, before we finish up. And, and there's this kind of, there's this gap that I want to see what happened in the gap. So at one point in your life, zero connection, basically. Like you said, you had some friends, but the way you were probably wasn't the closest connection. And now you describe your girlfriend as being your, you know, your dream woman. Yeah. What happened in between those two spaces, man? Like, how did you learn to connect? The work. Right. Like, just fucking put in the work. Um, I learned to love myself, which was the game changer. 
Um, I kept seeking out feedback from the world. I kept reading, like, you know, I'm sitting in front of my bookshelves now. I've got more books than probably most people have read in their life sitting in front of me. I just, I just didn't, I didn't stop. And I, I learned to own myself. You know, I, I learned to become a man rather than a boy trying to be a man. I learned to look challenges in the face and even if I'm scared of them, to move through them. And there's all of that. And then there's the fact that, you know, because I owned myself, because I wanted to follow my passion, and because I took those leaps of faith, I left university to build this business, what happened is the evidence that I was on the right path became overwhelming. Mm. Right? Like the, 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 the messages I was getting from the world, the feedback I was getting from people was so overwhelmingly obvious that I was doing what I'm supposed to be doing, that I am living my purpose, that it just started to infuse me with more and more certainty. And the more and more certain I got, the easier it was for me to say the right things and meet the right people, which then made me even more certain. And so I just became this compounding force. And then, you know, you add in my girlfriend's influence on me and she really helped me pull myself out of my head and, and to live in my heart and stick in my heart. And I'm at a place now where a lot of the things that I used to understand intellectually, I, I live and breathe now. Mm. I used to understand intellectually that I should love myself, but I've done that exercise and I've, uh, I've written the affirmations and I've, I've done the things so many times that it's, it's who I am now. It's the same thing with being certain. It's the same thing with running a business. It's just, I'm so, you know, I didn't give up and nothing was off the table. You know, I mentioned my competitiveness earlier. I fostered that because I was a pussy, to use your language, I was, and I knew that all of these like super masculine guys I would look up to, like Michael Jordan, were the most insanely competitive people. And so I built this competitive desire, and whether I built it or found it is up to however you want to look at it. But then it became a point where I realized that that same desire, which had helped me so much, had pulled me out of so much of my self-doubt, had built so much of the joy in my life. This thing that I cherished above all, my favorite part of myself, I had to let it go mm. because it was stopping me from moving forward. And if you're willing to go to that place with yourself, you're in the right environment to foster that and you know how to have those conversations with yourself, again, like even if your strike rate is half a percent, I, I hope my strike rate's a little bit more than half a percent, but back then... Even if our strike rate's half a percent, it's gonna it's gonna keep getting better. As long as you just don't give up and you just keep eating shit, like it's going to get better. And then, you know, as I've grown as a coach more and as I've helped more people, now I know techniques where I can make if I need to make a change, I can make it almost instantaneously. Right? Like some of them take a little while to condition, but I know myself so well now and I can read myself so well that you know I, I can just I can make change much faster than I could before because I started to realize why ninety nine and a half percent it didn't work. Yeah. Right? Like then you get you then you get your change rate to one percent, then you get it to two percent, and it's just like it's just it's the work. 
and it's the hunger and it's not wanting to give up and it's just like knowing that the better I could get, the more I could help people was just huge, right? Because, you know, it's really hard to let something go that you love unless, you know, if you hold on to it, you're not going to be helping people as much as you could. Mm. And then you're putting yourself above other humans and it's not good if, like, it's just, it didn't, it wasn't how I wanted to live my life. So, you know, there's that. I've been to programs, I've read the books, gone to seminars, like, it's just, I kept trying. Yeah, I think, God, it's just so important for people to hear this because I think, yeah, that quick fix mentality and that kind of overnight success story is sold so strongly and it's so fucking inaccurate about what actually happens that uh, just boggles my mind that we ever believe it. But I used to, you know, I used to really believe it. Um, look, man, I, 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 it's, it's so great to, to hear this story. You, you've surprised me with the amount of fucking suffering that you've been through. I was expecting something, but not quite that. And, and I love it. You know, I, uh, I've learned now that there's actually a kind of disadvantage in a pain-free or relatively pain-free upbringing. And that is you don't have enough to push you to change, which means you can just die in mediocrity. You can live in that purgatory forever because you're just comfortable yep. enough. Someone like yourself, you push right down to the fucking bottom where, as kind of cheesy as it sounds, the only way is up. You know, you kind of can't lose when you start at zero. So, yep. And I you're think. so, I mean, the day, the day that I let go of my suffering and I, and I went, I stopped crying myself to sleep and like I just like the PTSD disappeared and just like was, I definitely wasn't normal. I definitely had a lot of shit still left out, but like, the intense feelings of suffering was gone was when I realized what had happened to me had taught me the lessons and I had sp I had helped so many people and their lives had gotten so much better that I couldn't look at that in a negative experience anymore. I, I couldn't sit here and say the suffering that I had been through was bad because it had helped so many people and like that, and I literally mean like that, it was gone. And it's so right. Like I look back at what I went through now and I'm, I'm legitimately grateful for it. It's why I can laugh as I tell the story. Mm. Right? It's why I can pay myself out at 16 years old. Right? Like it's, it, it's because I know that I wouldn't be living the life that I'm living without it. And so, you know, if there's anyone out there who's eating shit at the moment and life is that hard, like, you know, recognize no one would have bet on me. Like mm. not, well, I would have bet on myself, but no one else would have bet on me. Right? And I wouldn't have even bet on myself back then. And yet, you know, I was literally voted the most hated guy at my college. Like it was in the, it was published in a journal that got sent out to all the people in the college. Like it was, it was a thing. Yet, uh, because of that, I was willing to just do the work and keep trying and not give up, and it and it worked. And so, look, if, if trust me, if I can do it, I guarantee you, you can do it as well. Yeah, and that I mean that I particularly resonate with. There's a lot of people out there who struggle to understand that the thing they're most ashamed of and most in pain about is the thing they'll be grateful for one day if they do the work. You know, the idea that someone can have this childhood and this 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 teenage, fuck, the whole fucking first 20 years really, isn't it? To have that and not want to change it. You know, that's... When people ask, like, why would you pursue kind of confidence building or anything? Like, that's the reason. The things would be so good that you wouldn't change that. It's hard to describe. Um... Mm -hmm. 
Look, man, I really appreciate you sharing your time with us uh, today. And, you know, I mean, we've hinted at, at the work that you do uh, throughout this discussion. But why don't you tell us a bit more detail, man? Like, how is it that you help people and, and what can people do if they want to talk to you more about this? Yeah, so, look, very simply, I have a website, mjfitzpatrick.com. 99% of the work I produce in my life, I give away for free. That's like, that's that's not a sales tactic. Like, so that's just the truth. Go on my website and join my email list. Um, I read and respond to every email. Um, and every week, I break down a person who's just cold emailed me with a problem that they want help with. And I, I not only send an email out to everyone, which I break down, you know, it's all anonymized, whatever mm-hmm. the, it is. I don't put their name in there. But I break down their problem. And not only do I break down their problem and is in giving them the solution, but I actually break down my reasoning, meaning mm-hmm. I'm showing them as a coach how I'm thinking about getting them to this answer. So, I mean, that's, that is quite literally the secret source of being a coach. So, you know, if people want to continue being in contact with me, please, by all means, jump on my website. Um, I email every new subscriber one by one. So we, I will send you an email if you join my list. Um, and that would be the, be the best place to find me. Well, there you have it, guys. And, uh, yeah, I know a lot of people listening now have had massive experiences with bullying um, and, if nothing else, with feeling socially isolated and not part of the crew. I know people who have had um, serious physical uh, mishaps in some way or another that had huge effects on their confidence and their self-worth. And I know there's plenty of people who have uh, turned to um, various forms of drugs to escape their pain. This is a guy who's done all of that you know, and, and come through the other side. So if you want, I mean, if you've been listening to this, I don't need to say more. You know he's the guy to talk to. MJ, Matt, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Awesome stuff, mate. Let's wrap it up there. Is there anything else you want to share before we close it off? Join my list. I'll send you now. <laughs> Fair enough. Awesome. Thanks a lot, man. And I'll see you guys for the next one of Brojo Online. Cheers.